I V M. If you're following along, you may think that the smart protein sector is well on its way to succeeding in our mission to diversify protein sources for a more secure, sustainable, and just food system. It isn't. We've barely scratched the surface of the impact we need to have, the scientific research we need to undertake, the support we need from governments, and the market opportunities which creating foods that taste the same or better and cost the same or less as their animal-derived counterparts can catalyze. That need is particularly urgent across the developing world, where rising populations and incomes mean increasing demand for protein, particularly meat, eggs, and dairy. Let's be real. If we're going to feed 10 billion by 2050 without continuing to break the planet, we need bold, visionary leadership that changes the way we eat. That's exactly what organizations like the X Prize Foundation, Abu Dhabi's Advanced Technology Research Council, the Tony Robbins Foundation, and the Global Good Food Institute Network have focused on developing over the last couple of years. In December 2020. Even amidst the surge in global food insecurity during the COVID-19 pandemic, we collectively launched the X Prize Feed the Next Billion competition. Feed the Next Billion seeks to meet the growing demand for protein products through the development of nutritious alternatives to traditional chicken and fish, hugely important in communities across the developing world. These foods must be cost competitive and more sustainable to human health, the environment, and animal welfare. Over the next three years, teams of global innovators will be asked to develop environmentally conscious alternatives that replicate the look, taste, smell, feel, and cooking experience of a fillet of fish or chicken. The prize: fifteen million dollars. To guide these interdisciplinary teams in developing their products, X Prize has recruited an advisory board that includes the likes of His Royal Highness Prince Khalid bin Abdulaziz of Saudi Arabia. Bernard Kowach, the head of the Innovation Accelerator at the United Nations World Food Program, and Chef Jose Andreas, the famous chef and owner of Think Food Group and founder of World Central Kitchen. It's my personal privilege to serve on that advisory board alongside those luminaries, including this episode's guest on Feeding 10 Billion Season 2.5, Lisa Sweet from the World Economic Forum. Lisa is head of the Future of Protein Group at the forum. And a frequent collaborator with us at GFI India and the Global GFI Network, she also serves as the forum's head of COVID response and food and health, and is now leading a new effort called 100 Million Farmers, transitioning towards net zero, nature positive food systems. In short, Lisa is central to everything that the forum does at the nexus of food and health. In a past life, she served on the United States Olympic Committee and has also been in the investment banking world at Lehman Brothers. What an interesting life! I'm Varun Deshpande, and you're listening to Feeding Ten Billion. Lisa, thank you so much for being on Feeding Ten Billion. It's a pleasure to speak with you again. The last time we spoke was at our Smart Protein Summit, which feels like a lifetime ago now. It was in October. You spoke about the excellent work that you're doing at the Future of Protein Initiative by the World Economic Forum,、uh, and how you're developing a set of new knowledge tools for food systems. In particular, you are looking at the issue of protein, as we are. And I'll quote you from the from the summit. Actually, you said the great thing about alternative protein is if you do it right and develop them the right way, you can hit multiple targets. So not just environment, animal welfare, or health, 
but also livelihoods, inclusivity, accessibility. Uh, and that's why WEF, the forum, has sought to raise awareness about transforming protein systems to deliver these multiple benefits. And just to echo what you're saying, that's music to our ears because at GFI India and Asia and specifically thinking about feeding the next billion, which is what we're talking about with XPRIZE as well, this is a huge target of ours. So if I may, could you give our audience a sense of where we are in hitting those targets? Because it feels like, you know, today in 2021, as we build back from the pandemic, we still aren't quite there yet. There's a lot to figure out to actually hit all those additional targets rather than just offering wealthy consumers in the West an option to switch away from the beef that they know and love. There's still a long way to go to hit inclusivity, global poverty, malnutrition, those kinds of issues. Great. Thanks so much, Varun. It's really, as always, a pleasure to talk to you. And of course, I'm thrilled to be discussing this topic today here and have the opportunity to reconnect with you and discuss a bit further on the XPRIZE and on the future of protein. So within the World Economic Forum, as you were saying, we really look to take that systems approach to what the world needs in the future. As that relates to protein, when we look at the world and when we look at the population, by 2050, and these numbers are a bit outdated, so, so bear with me, but the broad estimate is the demand for meat and protein is projected to double. Now that's from a starting phase a, a few years ago. But in order to address that need and to do it within the planetary boundaries, we must look at that and take it, the approach from that systemic level so we don't fail to deliver on a sustainable future across multiple fronts. So looking at this, this is an issue of food security first, first and foremost. How do we feed that population of 10 billion? But it's also an issue of environmental sustainability. Um, how do we look at the current footprint of the food and agriculture space and look to minimize that and reduce it and produce more regenerative farming and food systems? How do we look to really create a, a new system where we don't require as much land to produce the food as we currently do? How do we look at the world's seafood and fish systems, which are currently really uh, overfished uh, by about a third? How do we look at that and how do we change that trajectory from the environmental perspective? Secondly, from the health systems, we're not just talking about feeding a population with calories, but feeding them with the right calories and the right nutrition. And that goes both on the side of malnutrition, how do we bring a greater sense of nutritional component to the foods of tomorrow, but also on the overnutrition, how do we make sure diets are right-sized? How do we make sure that all consumers are really getting the range of what they need and not more? And then how do we look at the role that the food systems plays in some some broader health issues, things like the non-therapeutic use of antibiotics. How do we prevent the expansion of that? Things like zoonotic diseases. How do we prevent the transfer of those? Lastly, on the systematic approach that we take, we look at the livelihoods and inclusivity aspect of the food system and of the protein system. And currently you have over a billion people around the world that are involved in livestock value chains as some part of their livelihoods. That's a huge number, huge percentage of the global population. Similarly, 10 to 12% of the world's population relies on fish or seafood as part of their livelihoods. Again, kind of a huge population. And so they must be brought along in any transition that we look to embark on or that we start on. There must be a role for 
all of the people whose livelihoods are dependent on one form of protein and one part of the food system so that they can have a place in the next food system. As far as where we are on the scale and in terms of achieving the SDGs, we are a long way off. There is a huge trajectory to go. We must accelerate. We must move faster. To do that, we've got to work more collaboratively. We are really only at the beginning of this journey, and there is a tremendous way to go. At the same point, we talk about alternative proteins, and I'd love to change that narrative away from alternative proteins into one of protein diversification. Similar to all other aspects of the food system, there is a huge focus and demand and and shift on really finding one silver bullet, one magic solution that will fix everything. But with the size of the world, with the size of some of these food systems, and there's a lot of kind of micro food systems as well as the broader food systems, we can't just look to solve with a single solution. It can't just be the impossible burger fed all over the world or the beyond burger fed all over the world. We must look to enhance the range of proteins that the population of tomorrow is consuming and really bring that wide variety of access to all consumers at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly right. You mentioned, you know, no silver bullets. And I want to dive a little deeper on that, especially with some of the work that you're now doing that you've taken on more recently with the forum. But Lisa, I want to underline some of what you said, because if we're talking about the next billion, as we are with the XPRIZE Feed the Next Billion opportunity, many of those people, I would argue almost all of those people, are living in low and middle income countries. And so the questions or the considerations that we've mentioned here, inclusivity, jobs, public health, all of these things are particularly very, very important, very urgent, very critical in these countries, right? So we talk about this all the time. Public health systems in these countries happen to be particularly vulnerable. We have roughly 40% of the world's population living in the low and middle income countries, but over well over 60% of the world's foodborne illness related deaths, right? So there's a clear sense of vulnerability here. And in fact, you know, I'm sitting in Mumbai, about three kilometers away from Asia's largest slum, right? This is one of the largest population centers in the world. And right now we're seeing a second wave of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is why I'm stuck indoors all day. And there were people who were and are much less fortunate than I am. We saw at the beginning of the pandemic last year, basically pandemic refugees. And we will see, you know, climate refugees, people walking thousands of kilometers across state lines to get home to their villages, women, children, elderly, You know, lots of um, really, really tragic scenes that have made it all the more visceral to the rest of the world what is happening in these countries and what the future might look like. So even though there are no silver bullets, I think alternative protein and uh, the idea of diversifying our protein supply so that we can reduce the risk of all of this is particularly prescient and salient today. I do want to talk about some of the other pieces of that basket of interventions, though, in food systems. So, Lisa, congratulations. You've recently taken on yet another role at the forum to work on bottom-up smallholder farming, a lot of really interesting solutions in that regard as well. Would you like to really quickly tell us a little bit more about that so that our listeners can get more of a perspective and not just alternative proteins? Great, and thanks so much for the opportunity to talk about our new project. So our new project is really looking at, and we call it now at least 100 
million farmers, a billion consumers transitioning towards net zero nature positive food systems. And so this is really looking at the holistic role of the food systems in relation to this real concerted movement that you're seeing now around the world around climate change. And how can we move towards reducing the GHG emissions, uh, but very critically in the food systems the GHG emissions and kind of the food systems is integrally linked to nature as well. And at the end of the day, it doesn't make sense to decouple the environmental impact and footprint of the food systems with securing and restoring the natural ecosystems with which our food systems really rely on. And so we're taking a look at really how to really help people understand that food systems can make this positive shift to be restorative, to be regenerative, to sequester carbon in the soil, to bring down the emissions of particular segments of the food systems, but doing so in a way that actually empowers, incentivizes the farmers who really often, as I was in a call yesterday, actually around innovation within India and the food systems, and one of the farmers said, we're expected to be Superman. We're expected to solve everything and anything. And what we are looking to really create is a system by which we can empower and incentivize and ultimately pay farmers to make their farming much more sustainable, much more environmentally friendly, which will help to increase the resilience of the food systems over the long term. To do so, we recognize that it's not just about the farmer, and it's also about empowering the consumer to make those choices, bringing a different layer of understanding around where their food comes from and what some of those better choices can be as it relates to the environmental and nature footprint, and really helping and enabling the consumers to bring that market pull for products that are much more sustainable. Um, so that's what our new piece of work is about, and we're very, very excited about it. It's early stages, but it is the right year with the UN Food Systems Summit, with yeah. the COP26, with the CBD for biodiversity. A lot of activity at the international front really going on this year, and it's a great one to really bring to the attention of many stakeholders the really crucial role that the food systems and agriculture can play in creating a much more positive environment that also delivers inclusion and delivers for people at the end of the day. Lisa, this is what I've really enjoyed about these conversations about the XPRIZE Feed the Next Billion opportunity because a lot of the lenses that you're bringing to the table here, right? We're talking about multiple approaches, different, I guess, strings in our bow that allow us to transform food systems globally. But I think the underpinning principles of essentially reducing our footprint by a vast amount, but also empowering consumers to make choices, empowering producers, whether they're farmers or manufacturers, to make choices that make the most sense for the planet and reduce our impact on it are very much complementary or overlapping. So where we see the alternative protein sector as being complementary to a lot of these other efforts are that if you look at, for example, cultivating meat from cells, the idea is if we can essentially produce meat from cells, we allow to a great degree a lot of the land that's currently being uh, encroached upon, deforested, used to grow crops of a pasture for cows and pigs and, and chickens to be returned to whatever highest value use, whether that's 
for nature or for carbon sequestration or otherwise, right? In other ways also, I think you mentioned end markets that provide lucrative options to farmers. I think one of the things that we can do with plant-based foods is make sure that we're diversifying the inputs for the global food supply. So right now we've discussed this, I think, ad nauseum at this point, you know, we're getting 50% of agricultural output globally is three crops. That's an unsustainable production system, right? So if we can produce products like plant-based eggs that are made from mung beans, mung beans can be grown as a rotation crop, so you don't have to grow them the entire year. You don't have to create all these monocultures and you can create diversified sources of income for farmers, right? So even if they are smallholder farmers who otherwise have cows that are giving milk, they can also be growing pulses or lentils or, or other things that can provide them with another lucrative income stream. So have you thought about the, perhaps what would be your comment about the complementarity of the various things that you're doing right now? Because you're seeing things at such a systemic level now with all the various things you're doing. Absolutely. I, I think pieces these pieces really absolutely go hand in hand. Uh, you mentioned Moonbean. I think that is a, a perfect and beautiful example of really kind of one of the efforts that can be scaled up, that can give a greater livelihood to smallholder farmers who can produce that and really be part of a new set of value chains, a new set of kind of end products that they hadn't previously had access to that market demand. And as we shift and kind of look for the ingredients that will be the building blocks of some of the next generation of proteins, these alternative proteins, we have to think through how we actually help to support that entire end-to-end value creation. A lot of attention right now, certainly in the investment landscape, is really focused on the end product. And there's been fabulous developments recently in terms of kind of the taste and texture and the R&D side of the end product. But those products are only as good as the supply chains that fall behind them are and as the distribution chains are that they're plugged into. And these need to go hand in hand. We need to kind of build that entire ecosystem of the value chain development from end to end. I'm sure you're well familiar that uh, 2023 is the international year of the millet, right? So uh, (laughs) certainly, and I believe they're called coarse grains in India, millet? Yeah. Yeah. So some really kind of exciting opportunities around looking at how different value chains and protein diversification can be developed, can be supported, and and can really encourage farmers to diversify the crop production that they're doing right now and not have it focused on whether it's those three or those six main crops that you see around the world that really the bulk of the world depend on for the calories. I think what's critical in this whole space, and this kind of brings us to another area that we really focus on, is innovation and the innovation ecosystems that we can help to build. And when we talk about innovation ecosystems, we talk about or we think about them within the World Economic Forum really as uh, four different parts. A lot of people think about innovation and they think about technology and kind of that's where the thinking stops. Hmm. And it's great to have that technology innovation and we absolutely need it, but that is only one part of the equation. And the technology doesn't always have to be the most sophisticated, most advanced technology to really be disruptive to the food systems. Namely, case in point, think about the old school 
flip phone cell phones that are used for a lot of the smallholder farmers to provide them with advanced weather information or market information or be able to provide digital payments to them throughout the market. So really kind of we need to be able to think about the innovation ecosystems and build the innovation ecosystems that are so dearly and desperately needed, thinking not only of the technology and the infrastructure that surrounds that, but the regulatory approaches, what's needed in terms of policy, in terms of incentives that really can be developed and put into play. When we think about kind of the delivery systems Mm. of these innovation ecosystems, it's really about how do we skill and reskill and what does that skill base look like for the future? What is the financing that will accompany this? What are the business models? What are the support systems that need to be brought to bear in those ecosystems? And then really critically thinking about the end user. And in the food system, we actually have two end users, so to speak. Uh, We have the consumer at one end, which is who people normally think of when they think about food and kind of where that end user is. It's about the people that eat the food. But central to the food system, as you well know, Varun, is the farmer. And the farmer is a end user of a different sort. They're the end user of these technologies that can be brought to bear to really help deliver new food systems. They are really the ones who can be the recipients of new education models or reskilling models. Um, So there is a tremendous role that they play and there is a very much kind of the need to think about the farmer front and center in all of the transitions that the food system is going through or needs to go through. Lisa, that I think that's a pretty essential. I mean, it's fascinating. It is also an essential framing of what's needed. One of the things that I was thinking about is an interesting project that we're currently doing out of GFI India. I mean, at the time of recording, we haven't moved ahead with it yet. Uh, we're still working with some partners to frame it out. But Our goal is we've done a lot of research into the algal protein value chain, that's seaweed and microalgae. And it's great timing because the UN and the World Wildlife Fund and the Indian government are all also saying we'd like to invest in seaweed. And the UN Food System Summit is saying that they'd like to highlight some of this stuff. And we're in conversation with all of these players. And um, what we're doing out of GFI India is trying to align a proof of concept little value chain from beginning to end that I think aligns multiple or perhaps even all of these innovation pillars or innovation lenses that you just mentioned. So we're working with some partners to align smallholder farmers, educate them on how to produce, optimally produce the right strains of seaweed that can be used in the best end products for consumers, and then align partners along the entire value chain. So seaweed needs to be, you know, you need to analyze what strains are best to grow, Uh, You need to analyze how to grow them and educate people how to grow them. You need to then figure out how to harvest them, dewater them, form food products out of them, which involves these food science techniques. You know, you might extract the protein, you might create these functional ingredients, and then you might create end products. And guess what? Seaweed tastes like the sea, and so it's great to make plant-based fish out of seaweed, which is a very exciting new area that's growing, right? And Seafood happens to be growing in India as well as a category area. So there's a lot of interest and especially globally, it's a big area. So, you know, all of what you're describing right now, I think we have opportunities, especially in the developing world, to align these innovation lenses. And and like you said, the farmer has to be at the center of all of this, because if we're talking about nature positive production and we're talking about the complementarity of alternative protein to nature positive production, We have this opportunity to do things with things like seaweed, novel sources of protein, seaweed, moong, bean, whatever, and then 
immediately connected to an end market where the consumer is excited by these products. The farmer can immediately have a lucrative um, opportunity to sell their products and then also hey, guess what? Seaweed also happens to be a great carbon capture source. And there's, there's a lot of really great nature positive aspects to it as well. I have a question at the end of all of this, but I think we need to take a break. So we're going to come back after this short break uh, on Feeding 10 Billion. Thank you for your patience. Welcome back to Feeding 10 Billion. We're talking with Lisa Sweet of the World Economic Forum. Lisa, Uh, I had a question for you leading on from what we were talking about before the break, right? We were talking about innovation uh, and oftentimes what we're finding in terms of the most ambitious innovation is that it's coming from some of the largest corporations in the world. And this is where the World Economic Forum can really bring its convening power to the table. So, for example, Unilever globally has said that they'd like to have an annual target of 1 billion euros from plant-based foods that are much better for the environment in terms of public health, etc., etc. And they've made major investments towards that target. And it is still an ambitious statement because they have a lot of investment to go. Lisa, tell us a little bit more about Davos this year, how it's going to be different, how it might not actually be in Davos, and uh, and what your plans are to bring all of these themes to the table, whether it's nature-positive production, alternative proteins, etc., with some of the partners that you convene. Uh, and, you know, there's going to be 3,000-plus people there who are in C-level positions, leadership, governments, etc. We'd love to hear more about that. Excellent. Well... Davos is a, you know, is what the World Economic Forum is most well known for. But the reality of it is we have ongoing work that happens throughout the year. And the events are really just a milestone that showcases the work that we've been doing, that catalyzes a new set of work, and that really brings stakeholders together to address what some of the key and critical challenges are in the world right now. And so in the past, really, the food system and the food agenda has, over the years, really played an increasingly important role in Davos. And that Davos meeting generally happens in January in Davos, Switzerland, which is a snowy mountain town, which is quite little and probably not what you would envision it to be at all. This year, because of the COVID pandemic, we actually had to postpone Davos. And Davos this year will actually be taking place in Singapore in late August, which we're really excited about. It really brings a entirely new element to the table. It's a it's a new location, one where we've had meetings in the past in, but certainly not our annual meeting. Uh, so it will be a special meeting this year, a unique meeting that will be falling and fitting in within the the COVID guidelines within the region, but we're very excited about it from the food front. Through our work within the Food System Initiative, we really look to bring two different elements to not only the Davos program, but really many of the events that we hold in different regions around the year through the different meetings that we have. And those two elements include the programmatic component, which is really how do we talk about issues such as these, such as the need for protein diversification and the enabling environments that can help to support that. And certainly the Singapore government really presents a very food tech forward approach, a a very constructive mindset to what's needed. They are the first government in the world to have commercialized the use of cellular meats or cellular um, agriculture. 
and chicken bites are available now on the market in Singapore. So that's quite progressive. So we look to really bring the issue areas together, bring and align the stakeholders on the key topics and issue areas and the programs that we work on throughout the year. We also look to create an experiential part of the program when and where that makes sense. And so for past Davoses, we have done this in a variety of different ways. Last year, we had an entire day of the program, which was really dedicated to the protein diversification space, bringing a range of plant-based proteins to participants for them to experience themselves and taste themselves. In the past, we have brought the Impossible Burger to Davos in the past with our Sustainable Development Impact Summit that happens in New York. We did that in an entirely plant-based program for all of the meals and all the food that we provided throughout that. And I can't yet disclose what we have on the menu this year for the Singapore Davos However, I can say that we are really excited about it. We've been having a series of conversations and please stay tuned and follow us to see where we land the meals this year. Yeah, I think I might have an inkling of an idea, Lisa, (laughs) of what's on the menu this year. I do have a question that's kind of specific to, so, you know, we talked about Singapore and it's been great to work with the Singapore government. You mentioned they've, you know, been the first country to approve the commercial sale of cultivated meat in the market. And they've actually been on top of this since before they even had a food regulator, which is remarkable. The Singapore Food Agency was instituted on 1st April 2019, and we've been working with them for nearly three and a half years. So they've really been on top of this in terms of the the ecosystem of support from within the government, whether it's the Agency of Science, Technology and Research, Enterprise Singapore, Economic Development Board, really, really remarkable in terms of how they're seeing alternative proteins as part of their, their food security and economic growth story. There are, however, many Asias, and I think the move from Davos to Singapore signals this interesting shift towards the next billion, right? Which is, again, what we're trying to do with the the XPRIZE Feed the Next Billion opportunity. Could you speak a little bit to the role of some of these other countries that are around Singapore? Singapore is kind of a focal point in terms of technology, like you said, but some of your other work for nature-positive production and supply chains, countries like India, Indonesia, Malaysia, even Thailand for its manufacturing capabilities, What role do all of these places play in the broader food system, as well as perhaps especially in alternative protein? Thanks for asking that question. I think it's really a central one. And I I recognizing that I am answering it as a American who lives in Switzerland right now. So I come from my own Western perspective, uh, but really do try to take that broad global perspective and look at the role. And so if we look at, I think, the trajectory of where the demand is set to really grow in the next years for protein demand, that really is coming from Asia. It's coming from Asia. It's coming from Africa. Those are kind of the two main regions where the demand shift is expected to be tremendous in the coming years. And so from a demand side, I think all eyes are really kind of focused on the region and the region's trajectory and really kind of where they will play that role and what they will eat in the future. The interesting part about this space is that you do have a tremendous emerging middle class. And that's where you traditionally see those shifts into eating 
meals where animal-based proteins are much more central when those incomes rise. And so that really represents an inflection point. The interesting part of that inflection point is it hasn't yet happened. So behaviors haven't become ingrained for that region yet. And what we need to think about and really kind of encourage on the consumption side is a model and a mentality that there isn't a kind of similar to there's not a single silver bullet for a solution. There isn't a single silver bullet in terms of what should be your aspiration of a particular product to eat. And now is really that kind of wonderful moment of time where there can be these really intentional efforts to change the aspirational trajectory of this new emerging middle class and really help to shift them into dietary aspirations, which are much more diverse, much more colorful, much more plentiful in the right nutrients that they need based on what the deficiencies are from their current diet or in their current kind of regional profile. And that will look very different depending on what region you're in and what region you're sitting in. On the supply side, so that's kind of really on the consumption side. On the supply side, this market is, and I say this market, it's many, many markets, the Asian perspective, they're huge markets. So of course, Singapore doesn't have a huge land footprint, but many other countries in the region, and certainly India does, there are these tremendous land footprints where farming can happen and will happen and is happening and will continue to expand and develop. Um, And we need to, to, to be able to encourage that to happen in a way that is much more diverse, that does factor into the equation, the externalities that haven't been valued, that haven't been priced into the market in the past, that haven't been incentivized by subsidy schemes or market schemes in the past. Mm. And really, that's kind of where the future growth needs to come from. One of the kind of really, really exciting things that we're doing, and I talked earlier about the innovation ecosystems that are so necessary to be built, we're looking at how to develop those innovation ecosystems from a regional perspective, which really takes some of these larger narratives, larger changes that we see needing to happen at the food systems level to where they actually need to happen, which is in the regions on the ground and specific to the local and regional enabling environment from business, from government, from the farmer ecosystem, from the consumer ecosystem. And so earlier this year in Davos, we announced that we are building together with a number of partners these regional innovation hubs. And we have partnered with the Gates Foundation to launch one of those hubs in India. And we're really excited about it. It has tremendous potential to bring in a lot of the areas that we've been talking about so far. Yeah, we're very excited about that. Actually, the New Delhi uh, Food Systems Innovation Hub with the World Economic Forum, Let's uh, we're going to link that with this podcast because they're currently hiring, at least at the time of recording. You might have closed that position. I'm sure it's in great demand, but they are currently hiring and um, we'd love to circulate that among the audience. Okay, I'm going to play this pessimistic game right now. And some people in the audience might say, who are you and what did you do with the regular host of this show? But let me just build out the bear case here a little bit, Lisa. The, The reason I asked you about the supply side is because what if the idea of leapfrogging some of these harms is actually a lie? What if it's too late? 
right? Because you mentioned that some of these habits haven't set in yet. But if you look at aspiration, it very much seems to have, right? Like the demand growth for some of these foods that are extremely climate intensive, like animal sourced foods, for example, seems to have already set in. And it's not just the aggregate food and agriculture organization of the United Nations data that we're looking at. Even anecdotally, when I talk to corporations that are setting up factory farms in India or are even selling equipment to set up large-scale poultry production facilities in India, which would be, you know, they would have tremendous land, water, energy footprints. They would have tremendous industrial effluent and pollution footprints. And of course, they would have risks of public health, antibiotic use, etc. All of these producers say that they're seeing 25% demand growth year on year for the next 10 years. And COVID-19 has done nothing to slow that down. So what if we're too late? What if aspiration has already set in? And the work that we have to do on the supply side in terms of infrastructure and taking advantage of all these agroclimatic zones and making sure that the, the supply chain for all of these crops and the science critically, what if, you know, what if we're too late for all of that? <laughs> do you have an answer to this? I, perhaps the answer is the X prize feeding the next, uh, feed the next billion prize kind of thing, right? To stimulate more science and more entrepreneurship in this area. But I'm just building a bear case and seeing if you can, if you can convince me to be more more optimistic like I usually am. <laughs> I'm not used to this negative side from you, Varun. Uh, <laughs> I'm used to that positive optimism. So, you know, I, we are late, but we are not too late. And I am really, really encouraged by what we've started to see shift, particularly this year. I think, you know, a lot of people talk about COVID and how they haven't seen shifts happen so quickly. These are huge shifts that we're talking about. And I had the kind of really formative experience over the past year to work on a series of COVID response efforts in Africa and supporting the work that our Grow Asia platform does actually out of Singapore, uh, but broader for the region around COVID response over this past year. And the one fundamental kind of realization that I was left with is how viscerally everybody across the board felt the disruptions of COVID and how that really translated into a new grounding and understanding of what potentially is to come with climate change disruptions. And so I think leaders around the world, businesses around the world, stakeholders across kind of every part of society really are understanding and recognizing with a much greater urgency than ever before that what may become of the world and the planet is close to becoming that unless these shifts start happening at huge scale and start now. We, within the World Economic Forum, really fundamentally believe in the need for multi-stakeholder partnerships for different subsets of society to really come together to co-create solutions, to co-build the future that we need. And I think we're seeing that happen in really meaningful ways. And it's really exciting trajectory to be on. Um, I'll talk about the XPRIZE in a minute, but the other side of the optimism that I do really want to focus on is the youth. And I think the youth 
is our inspiration. Time and time again, this younger generation is really showcasing how they have a new value set that includes areas like the environment. It includes areas like inclusivity, everything that we've kind of seen all over the world with kind of some of the inclusive disruption efforts that and movements that have been going on really, really speaks to that new value set. And so while it may take longer to shift some of the older generations, I really have tremendous respect and inspiration for those that are certainly younger than me. Yeah, Lisa, I think that makes sense. By the way, in that previous segment, I said the word leapfrog, I think, three times. So if anyone from GFI India is listening, I owe rupees 30 to the leapfrog jar because I, I, I'm supposed to put in 10 rupees every time I say the word. Uh, but I agree with you, Lisa, insofar as I think the best time to have invested in this kind of innovation was maybe 20 years ago, because we have to build out an entire industry from scratch. That means infrastructure, it means talent pools, it means supply chains. That's not easy work, and that's not quick work. It takes time. But the second best time is now, right? And if we're talking about adhering to the sustainable development goals, if we're talking about securing our future, essentially getting off uh, all the land and the water that we need for the next generations, we actually have to think about these these changes now. So let, let's zoom in a little bit on the kinds of things that can get us there. And I really do think the, the X prize feed the next billion prize, the $15 million prize is the kind of thing that can do that because it overtly focuses on this kind of problem in low and middle income countries. So would you tell our audience a little bit more about that and the kinds of teams, the kinds of innovations that they're looking for? And I think the constraints and the the opportunities under which uh, those folks are, those teams are operating. Well, I'm really thrilled to be part of the XPRIDE Speed the Next Billion uh, Advisory Committee together with you, Varun. I think, uh, you know, this is kind of just another extension of the partnership that we have and how wonderful it is to work with GFI in a variety of different aspects. The XPRIZE Feed the Next Billion is a it's a $15 million competition that's seeking to address the impending food crisis by reinventing our global food system and creating a nutritious and affordable alternative to traditional animal-based chicken and fish products. And we've talked quite a bit about fish products already. We've kind of had the mention of kind of some of the different advancements that are coming out within this space. Chicken and fish really represent two key opportunities to really shift the focus on and and think through how we can accelerate innovation, how we can create teams that can collectively build solutions and how we can empower the next generation of innovators with the resources they need and the environment they need to really bring these solutions to the market in the right way with the right support. And so that's what's really exciting about the XPRIZE. The XPRIZE is a a structured competition that goes through a different series of rounds to really then single out a singular winner, but it's not about the singular winner alone. And through the variety of different stages, the winners of the different rounds of the competition or those that make it through the different rounds of competition are given increasingly greater levels of support to bring their ideas and solutions to reality. Um, And that's what's so exciting about this. The advisory committee has, I believe, nine of us on it 
coming from a variety of different walks of life and different approaches to how we need to transform the food systems from you, from myself, from investors who are really seeking to put money into the space, to the World Food Program and how they look at innovation, to Jose Andreas as a chef and kind of the role that chefs play in the ecosystem. And together we are helping to really bring a greater level of thinking a broader level of knowledge and support to this prize to really make sure that the innovation ecosystem that is provided by the prize and provided by all of us who are part of the advisory committee is the best one possible to generate these solutions, which will really help to be these critical game changers over time. Um, And that's why I'm super excited to be a part of it. Yeah, Lisa, I can't say any better than that. One of the things that really excites me about it also is that we or XPRIZE have deliberately chosen to focus on, as you said, categories or proteins that are relatively neglected within the global alternative protein landscape, right? Um, The first wave of alternative protein products, and I mean, you know, first wave of next generation alternative protein products that really taste the same or better as their animal-derived counterparts, or at least are really focused on on that target, like the Impossible Burger or Beyond Meat, Beyond Meat's Beyond Burger or Beyond Sausage, they focus on on beef and pork. And to a certain extent, those pro- to a great extent, those proteins are not eaten by the next billion. The next billion are going to eat more seafood, more chicken, and that might create a huge swath of challenges across all the areas that we've talked about before. So I think if there's an opportunity for us to, to look at the holy grail of these proteins, which is a structured chicken breast or a delicious fish fillet, in ways that make sense culturally, as well as from an infrastructure standpoint, to the developing world, what talent pools, what existing operating models, what existing equipment and infrastructure already is on the ground in these countries that can be used to produce these products in hopefully at price points and in ways that make sense to the population locally, that's going to be truly transformative. So it's a long road, it's four years, but I'm quite excited to see what emerges. Lisa Sweet from the World Economic Forum, thank you so much for joining us on Feeding 10 Billion. Thanks, Varun. I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode of Feeding 10 Billion Season 2.5 as much as I always enjoy chatting with Lisa Sweet. A quick correction, unfortunately, the World Economic Forum Summit will not be taking place at all this year because of the pandemic. However, all the things we discussed about the epicenter of food innovation shifting to Singapore and to broader Asia are definitely true, particularly with Singapore showing that bold and visionary leadership in the world of smart protein that we always talk about. We've also had a few exciting developments since we recorded this interview. The Good Food Institute's Global Network and the World Economic Forum have come together to create an alternative protein working group to represent the sector at the upcoming UN Food System Summit events this year. The working group comprises leaders from food, technology, and government all over the world and is a major positive step towards sustainability in our protein supply. Excitingly, we've also announced the 28 semi-finalists for the XPRIZE Feed the Next Billion competition. They include excellent teams from across the world with several in Asia and three coming from India. You'll hear more about these teams in the next two episodes of season 2.5, so stay tuned. This is Varun Deshpande signing off on this episode of Feeding 10 Billion. For more information, you can visit us at gfi.org.in and you can also go to xprize.org for more information on Feed the Next Billion. 
You can also follow us on social media at the Good Food Institute India on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever you get your social media fix. And of course, if you like this podcast, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can listen to us on the IVM podcast app or on ivmpodcasts.com. You can also follow us on our social media. We are at IVM Podcasts on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to reach me, you can find me at varund7 on Twitter and at varun5 on Instagram. Take care and we'll see you soon.